And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am so pleased once again to be sitting uh, sitting opposite uh, Dr. Art Sear, who joins us on a monthly basis here on the morning show to talk about uh, various issues and concerns of of national and international importance. And uh, Dr. Sear uh, is a well-known columnist whose work appears in newspapers all across the country, including our own Kenosha News. And uh, he is also author of uh, After the, the, the Cold War and uh, a number of different articles as well that appear in all kinds of important places. And in his busy schedule, uh, we appreciate him making time for the morning show. Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the program. Well, thank you, Professor, <laughs> Professor Berg. <laughs> Good to have you here. Good to be here. I, I emphasize that. <coughs> yeah, glad that you can uh, join us, and it's always a, always a great pleasure. So uh, we're going to begin in somewhat unconventional fashion in that uh, uh, not too long ago I shared with you um, a book that I had read and uh, the author uh, uh, of it that uh, I had interviewed on the morning show, namely uh, Lena Andrews, the author of Valiant Women, the Extraordinary American Service Women Who Helped Win World War II. I got done reading this book, and I learned so much from it. And for some reason, I immediately thought of you, uh, in part because of of the way in which it talks about somebody whom you greatly admire, uh, General George Marshall, but all he did to help foster the participation of women uh, in a really amazing, to amazing extent. I mean, yeah. and I think to an extent that a lot of us don't know anything about. I suspect you knew a lot of this story already, but... Uh, but I trust you uh, enjoyed the book, what you've uh, been able to oh, uh, read in it, yes, and indeed. Uh, took something away from it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm learning a lot, too. Marshall um, was vital in lots of different ways. He, uh, as President Roosevelt said more than once, uh, he couldn't sleep at night if General Marshall were out of the country. Hmm. Marshall very much wanted to command the Normandy invasion. But the best kind of decent and honest officer, he would not suggest that to the president. And FDR asked him whom he would recommend, whom he wanted, and left it up to him. And Marshall, of course, his uh, friend and protege, Dwight Eisenhower, was doing extraordinarily well in the hellish job of leading the Allied forces, first in North Africa, and then in uh, southern Europe, and then the big invasion in Normandy, France. So a great, great figure. And, of course, this book, Valiant Women, explores the way in which General Marshall led the way. He, it seems like he understood that for us to be successful in the Second World War, we could not do it without women, a lot of women, and many of them in uniform. And, of course— exactly. And, of course, we can imagine a whole lot of people being resistant to that idea. But fortunately, oh, yeah. fortunately there was somebody like General Marshall uh, really leading the charge. He was universally revered. Uh, he was certainly instrumental in a number of things, including winning the war, but in elevating Dwight Eisenhower, who had been a colonel forever, to a brigadier general. And, bring, and bring, bring, he brought him to Washington not long before we were in the war directly. He'd, Ike had been in Texas. 
and uh, after being in the Philippines, suffering under General Douglas MacArthur, and uh, Mar Marshall recognized his genius, especially as a planner, and uh, MacArthur excelled in that as well. And they had a realistic understanding of plans. Ike once said, "Planning plans are worthless. Plans are worthless, but planning is absolutely essential, which mm. means that once the difficulties start, especially war, things change very quickly in a war, and everything goes out the window. But the relationships, uh, what I think he meant was that the relationships you develop in the planning process, mm. basic planning is, of course, essential, whatever happens, but you develop bonds and dynamic understandings among people. Hmm. W which is crucial to leadership in any situation, even though that's a point not often mentioned by the data maniacs today, hmm. and uh, is a successful to real life management. Marshall was truly universally revered. Yeah, that sounds like a good subject for uh, maybe a future column, uh, the essential quality of leadership and that aspect of it, which I think you're right, we don't talk about enough. I uh, Yes, I, I have... I have um, referred to Marshall in past columns, but thank you very much. I appreciate that suggestion, <laughs> and I, th I agree with you. My very first job, and I, was, I don't want to personalize this, but this is important, I think, regarding Marshall, when I was uh, 13 years old, I got a job as an office clerk for a small accounting business, a man who was a friend of my father's, and a World War II veteran set up the business and uh, I, I don't tell anyone I did. It was actually against the law in California to get a work permit until you were 14. But mm. my <laughs> father was a, um, speaking of great men, he was truly a great father. And uh, he was had a very strong worth, work ethic, to say the least, the Great Depression generation. And Jack Hendricks was a very fine man, a very <coughs> a struggling businessman. Uh, by the time I met him, he... Uh, was overweight and he um, uh, was smoking too much and basically drinking himself to death. Eventually the business went under, although he ran it as best he could. Uh, he didn't have any children and he had me come in um, to help him refinish his office floor, among other things, on Saturdays. And he would talk away. He'd been on Bougainville in the South Pacific Mm. near Guadalcanal early in the war in the army. Bougainville was so horrific, we never took Bougainville. We simply drove the Japanese into a peninsula which could be sealed off and patrolled the ocean, uh, patrolled the water around it, and uh, had uh, arm armored and armed barriers to keep them in until the end of the war. And uh, they suffered in agony and engaged in cannibalism, among other things. Uh, Jack was um, rather disfigured. He had been badly imaged, injured when his uh, uh, unit was caught in an artillery barrage. And uh, he had some scars. His eyes were big and bulging because his glasses were special glasses. On his desk, there was a picture of him as a fine young man from Nebraska, I think, from the farm, wearing his army uniform right after basic training, and I was struck by what a handsome guy this was, which he was not. 
he had a compulsion to talk to me about his war experiences, which I found. I, keep your war stories to yourself, especially around kids, mm. I learned. I mean, he wasn't being malicious, but General Marshall died during this time, and he brought it up, and he talked with great reverence about, have you, have you uh, heard that General Marshall died? It's in the news and in the newspaper, and actually I did. And he was quite moved and touched and uh, almost tearful. Mm. He never met the man directly, but the GIs, the sailors, they all knew who um, General Marshall was. He was quite a, a magnificent presence during the war. Absolutely. This, uh, this was not a sentimental man. He was not a businessman. He had lots mm. of personal problems. I learned a lot on the job, but that it's uh, personal only because I think it communicates. So that story sticks with me. Sure. Along with, <laughs> unfortunately, the very graphic stories he told me, which we don't have to talk about on the war on the air. Right. Well, and and of course, General Marshall's uh, amazing legacy also extends to all that he did after the war with yeah. the implementation of the so-called Marshall Plan, and he he had a great understanding about matters uh, beyond warfare and human <clears throat> conflict, and and uh, yeah, he's he's a great man, and f- as I said, figures prominently in this really interesting book again called Valiant Women. Uh, <clears throat> women are vital. In the everywhere, all the time. I'm not being funny in any way, but uh, uh, including in wartime for this country, the British and ourselves, especially, and Canadians and Australians mobilized women for the war, and in large numbers, women serving. In wartime, dates from the um, from the beginning, but the Civil War, large numbers of women went to work as civilians in the Treasury Department, among many other skills, <coughs> fine motor skills before machinery meant they could efficiently imitate the Secretary of the Treasury's signature hmm. on Union greenbacks, vital to uh, There was a huge debate in Lincoln's cabinet. It's worth looking up. I mean, these graybirds were sitting around debating the subject endlessly. And what they were concerned about believe it or not, on public radio, what they were concerned about was sexual harassment. Hmm. Women are pure. They're virtuous, except for the fallen ones, and only because of us are they fallen, and we are sinful, and men are weak, and on and on and on. Incredible. Hmm. And finally, the president, who had a great way of, President Lincoln in this case, got a great way of getting to the point, (laughs) uh, put down his hand and said, gentlemen, look at the casualty lists. If we don't find a way to get more men up to the front very quickly, the front lines of our Union armies very quickly, we're going to lose this war. And we're going to lose this war very soon, which focused the discussion. Mm. And it was vital. And to a limited degree, women in the Confederacy worked in the, in the meaningless Confederate Treasury mm. and elsewhere. And, of course, in hospitals, Clara Barton was the mm. American equivalent of Florence Nightingale, who created the Red Cross. Great stories, amazing endless, stories. Endless, endless, and uh, this author captures them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, again, that's Lena Andrews, and the book is Valiant Women. Exactly. Well, the, the extraordinary let, American service women who helped win World War II. Phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you so much. for. Yeah. I, w- I didn't know about the book. Yeah. Glad you, you enjoyed professor. it. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Professor. Let's turn our attention to the continent of Africa which uh, figured prominently in one of your most recent columns. And as a matter of fact, 
uh, Africa was uh, mentioned on uh, National Public Radio's Morning Edition today. Uh, story of, of uh, ongoing unrest actually in the the nation of Chad. Yeah. Uh, but your your yes, book. Yes, spe- I heard. I heard that. But your books, uh, your I should say your column specifically. This is from uh, uh, I think a, a week or two ago. Uh, mentions a, a series of of military coups that have occurred in in various African nations, actually over the course of the last <laughs> couple of years, and uh, you you write at one point the entire international community has stakes in this worrisome trend. Uh, so what is going on in 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 Africa that you think is 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 leading to this? Well, there's a lot going on, including a lot that's uh, positive. But to give you a straight answer. Um, Representative government has been growing. They, um, including Helen Johnson Sirleaf, who has visited um, Milwaukee, the uh, first woman president of Liberia. This is not a subject I know in any depth, Um, but it's not because of women, but it's because of the uh, things that go along with democracy, generals have been taking over. That's nothing new. There are uh, military coups throughout history. Fortunately, not in the United States. And um, so there have been military takeovers. Uh, Ali Bongo, great name, mm-hmm. a pretty fairly elected president <coughs> of, I believe, um, Guinea. Uh, Gabon, Gay- looks Gabon, like. yes, yeah. thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Not a subject I know well. Thank you for yeah, correcting me. Yeah, okay. Very much. Um, he was ousted. He's still alive. And it was actually a faction of the ruling clique, which he represents, mm. who put him out of office. So it's the usual reasons privileged people um, have been living high off the hog mm. in these countries mm. since independence. And... Uh, it's a trend. It's in Francophone Africa, just as it happens currently, that a lot of this is happening. Right. So in some cases, this is people who have enjoyed the fruits of corruption and yeah. and are, in a sense, striking back when, in a sense, more democratic forces rise to, to try to uh, make it a fairer playing field. Uh, those who don't like that idea uh, sometimes lead sort of counteraction against it. Uh, Plus uh, terrorist groups, ISIS, especially the Islamic State, plus uh, the related Al-Qaeda group, this we all know about, Mm. instrumental in the terrible 9-11 terrorist attacks on our country. Uh, They they are growing in influence at waxes and waned. Africa Command is now a very substantial part of the U.S. military presence in Africa. Uh, the French have performed extraordinarily well, as I had a chance to point out recently at a, at a lunch. A uh, very, very significant corporate leader mentioned with some disdain, what does, when's the last time they won a battle, actually? Hmm. Uh, Foreign Legion is tough. French, <laughs> French have their own strong military tradition, and they've been performing pretty effectively against terrorists hmm. in these countries. Hmm. A domestic coup is a little different. These are independent countries, and a domestic coup is not a direct threat to France or the U.S. or any other country. So uh, 
it's not a situation where you can intervene. But the, the French have a, their own fascinating history, a lot of it very positive. Mm. And uh, you don't want to mess with Frenchmen in uniform. I'm, mm. I know that's not the image. Mm. And so, and this gentleman, very fine man, very um, influential man, was reflecting public opinion. Hmm. Careless public opinion, it sounds like. Speaking of carelessness, we one all, of the... We always are when it yeah. comes to our opinion. Well, and one of the things you say in this column is historically, Americans have been absent-minded about Africa. Yes. Although you do you know, uh, talk about a couple of exceptions with JFK and uh, President Carter, but... Uh, significant exceptions. Right. But otherwise, uh, in general, I think you're calling for us, uh, both individually and, and, and as a nation to pay attention uh, to Africa and what is going on there, pay more attention than we're apt to. Yes, and as I mentioned, that has changed very much for the better. Bill Clinton deserves a lot of credit. Um, he was not focused on any area of foreign policy except when he had to be as president. Hmm. That's, ju that's, just not, that's not just my opinion, but hmm. there's factual b background for that. He was in many ways a very effective president in positive ways. And in Africa, he loves to travel, and especially since leaving office, he's something of a rock star in mm. Africa. People, I've, uh, I've never been around him. I did some work for the uh, <coughs> first campaign in 1992. And uh, he's a remarkably magnetic figure, so he is mm. a rock star in Africa, and the Clinton Foundation and others have devoted time and aid uh, to Africa. President George W. Bush, whom I do not admire, deserves credit nonetheless for um, reacting very strongly to the public health crisis internationally, the AIDS crisis mm. at the time, and his administration. The, the ongoing, that ongoing lethal pandemic, and um, Clinton, Bush, and since and naturally, President Obama was very popular in Africa. So lot, for lots of reasons, Africa is becoming more visible. Mm. But JFK and Carter deserve a lot of credit. For mm. all they did. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today <coughs> on The Morning Show with Dr. Art Sear, uh, a monthly visitor to The Morning Show, and uh, joining us to talk about a number of his most uh, recent columns and some of the uh, issues which they, uh, they explore. I know that one of the... Uh, uh, more recent columns uh, talked about a part of the world you know a whole lot about, namely uh, South Korea and mm. Japan. And you talked about uh, something that, that happened in mid-August that uh, did not receive uh, substantial coverage in the news, that, yes. at least not that I noticed, but uh, is something quite important, particularly for that part of the world, namely a really historic accord reached between Japan and South Korea. Maybe ahead of talking about that, uh, maybe you can expound on a point made in this column when you say that Japan and Korea share a complex, difficult history. Yes. Um, Korea, historically unified, it was only divided between North and South at the end of World War II when um, it was a Japanese colony and uh, the Soviets <coughs> occupied the northern part and then we occupied the southern part. The Cold War really started beyond Europe in Asia with the Korean War. The um, Koreans were occupied. They had national unity, basically, 
even though China and Japan are our neighbors. Around 1200 AD, the Koreans uh, gave the Japanese Navy a tremendous defeat. Hmm. They have a very strong military tradition. Uh, but they were occupied by Japan from, um, I believe, uh, the 1890s, certainly the beginning of the 20th century until 1945. And it was a very brutal occupation. And the Japanese uh, used um, uh, Korean men as uh, for the hardest physical labor. Korean women were grossly exploited as prostitutes for the uh, Japanese army. And negative feelings run high. Mm. Uh, Japan has paid money in compensation to Korea, but it's a very touchy issue, the, understandably. The... Um, the dynamic changes in government as well as the economies of East Asia generally and Southeast Asia and South Asia mean that there are incentives to get together. And earlier this year, the president of South Korea had lunch in Tokyo with the prime minister of Japan. It was kind of a love feast, highly publicized. And that was obviously the prelude to this meeting with President Biden where they put together in a, a formal alliance. With the rise of China, this is particularly important. Mm. So thank you for noting that. It's, um, as always, with our very close South Korean friends, it's very important for us Americans. Right. I wanted to ask you about something very specific in that column that intrigued me a lot when you said the two economies, now we're talking about, again, Japan and South Korea, the two economies uh, are world leaders in scale, production, and overall effectiveness but are notable for remaining surprisingly separate from one another. Yes, that's w because of the history okay. that I described. Japan, of course, is an economic powerhouse. When it, it appeared, and they didn't take over Asia, bl blessedly, in World War II, it appeared in the, um, from the 60s into the 90s when suddenly Japan collapsed economically that they were taking over economically, <laughs> including big parts of the U.S. Yeah, a lot of us were very nervous about that at the time. Yeah, yeah, and there was a racist undercurrent to the political rhetoric at the time hmm. that, uh, and I'm sorry to say President Clinton to a degree, master politician, hmm. vaguely echoed this for a while, and then smart people around him shut him up on, on that. But auto workers, on the evening using sledgehammers on Toyotas and hmm. Nissans. And I, I don't sense that today regarding China for all our problems. Right. But that, that was what I was alluding to. So, so when we're talking about these two big economies that yeah. are in close proximity and yet very separate from each other, so I think what you're talking about in terms of the, the way in which they're separate from each other is that you know there's there's actually been very little in the way of cooperation with yes. them that that we might assume is there and it sounds like this agreement reached in mid-August is a really decisive step towards much more cooperation than we've ever seen is that yeah possible? there was overt public hostility uh, and both sides were very open about that until quite recently so this important meeting builds on. Um, 
very important long-term developments. And as you say, it, it needs more attention. Absolutely. And one of the things you say, your, your kind of parting shot in this column, is that uh, kind of our mounting concerns about China uh, should not cloud the fact that there is this really positive development between South Korea and, and Japan. That yeah. is head, should be headline-making news. Yeah, that's headline-making. Um, a relatively new, it's a stretch geographically, but important, relatively new uh, security agreement involving India, Australia, uh, the U.S., and Japan is important. The um, Trans-Pacific Partnership failed, but it nonetheless ref uh, reflected <coughs> the tremendous steady growing economic influence of Asia. APEC, which George H.W. Bush, a very effective president, uh, and Secretary of State James Baker engineered during those years as, as a really historic, strong trade understanding. Hmm. You just mentioned the nation of Australia, and that is uh, something else you wrote about fairly recently, I mean, in one of your, your, yes. your recent columns, about uh, a, a visit to Australia by our uh, uh, U.S. Secretary of State and our Secretary of Defense, uh, Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin, yeah. and uh, meeting there with their Australian uh, counterparts. And, uh, and you say that Australia is increasingly central uh, in the growing multifaceted contest with, with China. And so in some respects, it sounds like they are becoming an increasingly important and potentially valuable ally for us. Yes, that's right. And historically, that is a close alliance, rather like our close ties with Britain. Hmm. I mentioned uh, Guadalcanal and Bougainville, not far from Australia, the tremendous Japanese drive south after Pearl Harbor was finally blunted just north of Australia. They have a very powerful military tradition. I can assure you I've been, ar <coughs> I've been around them. Hmm. And they, uh, that close military alliance, they were vital in educating innocent young, mostly young, mostly innocent American Marines and sailors and soldiers and airmen to um, jungle warfare, at which they were quite adept. Hmm. And things date from there. From the Cold War, we've had ANZUS, Australian, New Zealand, and the U.S., a very durable security pact that nobody mentions. One of the things you say about Australia and the role that it plays is that Australia provides bridges between developed and developing nations. Uh, what do you mean by that? In what way does Australia manage to do that? Uh, geographically, they're very mm. close to a lot of developing nations ah. in Southeast Asia. And the um, sea route curving around Southeast Asia, heading toward Europe, is an, from ancient times a really vital trade route. They <coughs> excuse me, they've been involved with China for a long time in positive ways for trade and economic reasons. So they're a good uh, entrepot for the rest of us into Asia. Hmm. You mentioned also in this column that, that uh, among other things, 
the United States has actually a, a, an elevated military presence in the yeah. northern part of Australia, which is probably also something that figures significantly in terms of our presence in this important part of the world. Yes, we have these long-standing alliance relations. Uh, President Obama sent some U.S. Marine units, I believe, to Australia, and that was notable news and reflected the fact that security concerns related to China in, are growing in Asia. But mm -hmm. they're a very friendly base for us, like Great Britain in an earlier time. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Art Sear today on The Morning Show, touching on a number of uh, his most recent columns. And uh, uh, as you can tell, we are geographically uh, uh, moving far and wide across the globe. Uh, and, and actually, we're going to move for the next few minutes uh, to the Middle East uh, because of uh, a column that you wrote uh, talking about uh, America and its difficult relationship with the nation of Iran. Um, it's interesting. I know you don't write the headlines for your column, and I saw a couple of different no. columns that spun the column very positively in terms of of encouraging breakthroughs between America and Iran. Uh, but then you actually read the column, and while that is part of the story, yeah. I mean, a big part of the story remains just how difficult <clears throat> relations are uh, between our two <coughs> our two uh, nations. But what what are these positive developments that occurred recently that... Uh, well, so Iran, Iran assets, that's not the most recent column, of course. And thank you for researching so thoroughly. <laughs> You'll, of course, at some point remember columns better than I do, but uh, American uh, hostages that have been held by Iran, one of their favorite ploys, mm. very cruelly, right. have been released, and in turn we've released some of the very substantial Iran assets being held. They, it is their money, legally. It's their funds. But starting with the Iran crisis in 79 and the fundamentalist takeover, among other things, our State Department froze, Treasury Department froze their very substantial assets. There's a lot of oil wealth related to Iran. Hmm. And uh, so that's a positive development. But the the goofy guys in small patrol boats are harassing <laughs> our aircraft carriers because they have a death wish, and they're also harassing tankers and pirates who have safe haven in Iran have taken over a tanker or two. So we are greatly increasing our naval and marine presence hmm. uh, this summer. And as I recall, that was the genesis of the article. Right, but you're right. Editors are always rewriting. <laughs> Headlines. <laughs> yes. Aspiring journalists, please take note. Right. I, I think I write great head headlines, but part of being an editor is I got to change this guy's headline. Right. I'd give him something to do. So one of the points you made in this column that I thought was really great is a lot of us, when we think about Iran, if we think about Iran, we think of it as a very ancient and, in some respects, you know, sort of a, I, I don't know, backward exactly is the right word, but I mean, I think. Often Americans tend to think of a, of a nation like Iran in those those kind of terms. We just don't think of it as a modern nation, even if they have you know modern cars and a modern good military. Point. But yeah, very good but, point. But your your column, in a sense, says just the opposite, because you say, in fact, Iran is a relatively <laughs> modern economy and a relatively modern society 
compared to some of the other nations around it. And yes. I thought that was just really an interesting point and maybe clarifies kind of the nature of this of this nation and and maybe tells us something about our relationship with them. Yeah. Historically rooted, not ancient, but uh, we can thank President Truman and especially President Eisenhower for moder modernization efforts on the plus side. And Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, Russia, the Soviet Union, predecessor to Russia, occupied parts of Iran at the end of World War II. And uh, President Truman forced them to leave, partly by threatening to use the atomic bomb. We would not have done so, but the Russians withdrew. And in fact, they actually, the Soviets withdrew, <coughs> Russia the dominant power. They actually were very good about respecting border agreements hmm. during World War II. They occupied uh, parts of Europe that were occupied by the, um, uh, the Wehrmacht, but the alliance agreements at Yalta before the end of the war had pretty st strict borders stipulated. And it's important to keep in mind, especially given things today, that the Russians very carefully withdrew from areas they'd paid a high price for, mm. including Berlin, West Berlin. They paid an enormous price. Mm. Um, about a million Soviets were involved, and a lot of them were killed in the final Gotterdammerung, the mm. final grotesque assault on Berlin. Right. Uh, so they backed away from Iran. They did have a democratic, Iran had a democratically uh, elected chief executive, a man named um, Mossadegh, I believe, and he was overthrown by British intelligence and uh, the CIA and uh, strong urging from British Petroleum. Uh, part of the Cold War. Mm. We engage, uh, people on the left, especially academics, will regularly bring this up as one more sign of the sins of America. Please make up your own mind on that. Mm. But Eisenhower, with his usual comprehensive approach, devoted, uh, we were involved. Alan Dulles, his brother who ran the CIA, was involved. Uh, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, his brother, directly involved. But then we devoted substantial aid to Iran. They have a very large middle class, very large professional class, a large number of executives, engineers, doctors, hmm. lawyers, you name it, are there, and they are women. They have a large female, uh, wealthy, influential, educated population. And cell phone use, getting around the Ayatollahs, has been driving the Ayatollahs crazy. <laughs> These ongoing huge demonstrations about a woman who has terribly died in prison custody because she didn't wasn't wearing her headdress right. It's really awful. That has sparked all kinds of public protest in Japan, in Iran. But it is based on a strong middle class historically. Mm. Right. That's what I was referring to. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the you know the the. the the, the way you also describe these these uh, public demonstrations and widespread public discontent in in Iran, and and the fact that in your words information 
can no longer be suppressed yeah. uh, by Tehran, although Tehran continues to try. And of course, this is a story we've seen play out all around the world. Yeah. And for all the ways in which we might lament the way that we're leaning over our cell phone screens uh, you know, for hours at a time, it is also this amazing tool that uh, is, is being used for good in these kind of situations. Very important, Greg. And uh, we've been discussing dictatorships. The Soviets, the Bolsheviks, could seal off their people from the outside world. Nazi Gen Germany was hermetically sealed from the outside world, literally. People had a false view right up until the end of the war. Germans thought they were winning the war right up mm. until the end. You can't do that anymore. Driving Ayatollahs crazy. Also, there's, there's no single dominant dictator. It's, my understanding is it's a bunch of these ayatollahs, hmm. old men in turbans, who are uh, spending a lot of time feuding and scheming and arguing and uh, screwing around trying to increase their own influence. It's a mess. Hmm. Let's finish out by talking about uh, one of your most recent columns. I mean, this Thank within you. the last week or two, and this is uh, one in which you talk about the matter of presidential impeachment. And, of course, that's something that has not happened often in American history. And uh, for the longest time, it had only happened once with our 17th president, Andrew Johnson. And, of course, uh, President Clinton was impeached, and then uh, President Trump was impeached twice. And uh, in this column, you mention uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking almost casually about uh the possibility, and he seems to think it's actually the likelihood that at some point uh, Joe Biden will be impeached. And so uh, I think your column in part is a cautionary one for us not to think about impeaching a president in, in, in casual terms. It's become very casual since Vietnam and Watergate and that turmoil. Hmm. But your book, your, your column, I should say, really does a wonderful job of spelling out the story that I think a lot of us do not know about Andrew Johnson, uh, what he was like, and why uh, he was impeached, and why he was nearly removed from office. And uh, your column is also the story of one brave senator from Kansas who uh, cast the uh, decisive vote that, of course... Uh, kept Andrew Johnson from being removed from, from office. I really appreciated kind of the historical context uh, with which you, you, you told this story. Uh, so just share with our listeners whatever uh, you think is important to say about uh, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and his near removal from office. Abraham Lincoln, elected in 1860, got himself renominated. In 1864, fortunately, fortunately uh, he dropped Hannibal Hamlin, a very pleasant fellow from New England, hmm. as his run running mate, and replaced him with Andrew Johnson, who was extremely well-positioned, picked by a very shrewd man. He was a Democrat and pro-slavery from Tennessee, but he was also pro-Union, an early Confederate state that was occupied early on by Union troops, an early success in the Civil War for the Union, for our country. And um, Lincoln was 
looking in lots of ways, despite the fact the war was still going on in a terrible way, to the post-war period, looking ahead. And Andrew Johnson, in many ways, was an ideal choice. Uh, but he was also a very argumentative man and a very heavy drinker, even by the standards of the time. He stood out as a really difficult personality. I and know at one point you used the term self-destructive, yes. which I thought was really interesting. Well, obviously it was. 18, he <coughs> promoted Lincoln's reconstruction policies. Uh, the Republicans held the whip hand in Congress, and a large share of the party was a very radical Republicans who wanted to uh, treat the South with great vengeance. And Jackson resisted that. Uh, they passed unconstitutional laws to restrict the power of the president. Cabinet appointments, he would veto them. They voted over his veto. And in 1868, they voted to impeach him, which means the House votes to try him, and then he was tried in the Senate. And he uh, was acquitted by only one vote. The uh, Spielberg movie Lincoln, I think, provides a very gripping, seems pretty accurate to me, drama about this crucial vote to abolish slavery. The prelude to the vote uh, on um, Johnson, people generally assumed he'd go out, but by one vote he was saved. Hmm. A Republican senator who sacrificed his career. And I recommend... Um, John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage, which each chapter is devoted to a great American who exercised tremendous courage in the face of political odds, and in some cases, the loss of his own political career. Mm. That's right. It really all ended for this Senator Ed Edmund G. Ross. I think part of what your column does and, and is... he knew it would. Yeah. And uh, part of what your column does is sort of... <clears throat> has us think about something that I think a lot of us don't think about at all, namely what would have happened if, in fact, Andrew Johnson had been removed from office. And, uh, and you suggest some, some really awful things might have very much in, in, ensued yes. if Johnson had been removed from office. What, what likely <clears throat> would, have, what would have transpired? Well, well, like I say, the radical Republicans wanted a very vengeful, malicious reconstruction imposed on the South, basically dictatorship. The uh, e U.S. Army occupied the former Confederate states into the 1870s, and they were finally withdrawn under President Grant. Uh, Grant was a very honest man, a very benign man for a general, a very great man, not just in my opinion. And um, if and he calmed the waters and worked things out. Reconstruction was ended. But if Johnson had been removed, the chaos would have become much more intense, and the vindictiveness toward the South would have become much more intense. Hmm. Well, as someone who knows a fair amount about the U.S. presidents uh, and knew something about this, I, I must confess that until I read your column, I really did not have a full understanding of just exactly what was at, uh, at stake. I guess I had read so much about kind of the unpleasant, unfortunate aspects of Andrew Johnson himself that, you know, in, in, in my careless reading of history, I mean, it would have been just as well if such a man had been uh, voted out of office. And you really helped me understand how high the stakes were. 
and uh, and just what might have ensued if this senator from Kansas named Edward G. Ross had not uh, voted uh, voted not guilty in this crucial trial of Andrew Johnson. So I'm appreciative of you uh, helping me understand this moment in our history better. Well, thank you, Greg, very much. That means a lot, and I will keep at it every week. <laughs> Dr. Art Sear, our monthly visitor to The Morning Show, uh, joining us today, and uh, we look forward to you coming back to The Morning Show uh, to uh, join us to talk about uh, other matters important, both uh, domestically and abroad. And uh, thank you again for being part of The Morning Show today. Well, thank you so much. A great pleasure for me, a real tonic for me. Whatever the weather outside, it's just <laughs> wonderful and warm to be here, and that's because of you. Thank you so much.